good morning, everybody. Thanks for the good morning. Good, good to see you guys. Um, if you guys know, even, even as uh, Krista prayed, that we're a little bit different than normal on this Sunday because uh, several of our folks are out of town for spring break, and then a, a good group of us actually are in Haiti, including both of our pastors. So uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here, and we'll be kind of uh, doing our teaching uh, this morning. So welcome, you guys, especially all you new folks. And I don't see her right now, but it's good to have Krista and the kids back. So I know they were super sick for quite a while. So good to see you guys again. We've been um, enjoying this. uh, Oh, wait, I wanted to read something real quick. I got two very, very short emails from the Haiti team, so you can at least hear what they said earlier in the week. Um, Adam writes, our trip's going well. All travels uh, were fine, and uh, every piece of luggage arrived. Uh, We've had led one day of kids clubs where Chad shared the gospel with 50 kids. Uh, we painted a home yesterday morning. We went door to door this morning and shared Christ and the basic and, and taught basic hygiene. Uh, we met quite a few believers and have been able to share the gospel with several people. And then later in the week, they said, just a real quick second update. The trip's going well. We've got an amazing team of local believers we're serving this week. Lots of chances to share the gospel and large kid club every afternoon with 125 kids. Uh, the medical team's rocking it. They came, they, today they crossed the 400 patients number. Uh, we planted trees, prayed for uh, tons of people, and shared the gospel and taught hygiene. So um, good little short reports. And I know you guys, uh, some of you bachelors and bachelorettes, because your husbands or wives have been gone, you'll enjoy having people back uh, this afternoon. So thanks for your sacrifice and letting them go as well. Have you all been enjoying the Ruth study that we've been doing? Um, it's really fun. I, I love like reading, like I said this last week, I love reading narratives because you can kind of find yourself in the story. And so much of the Bible is not just teaching. We do have kind of prophecy or we have letters and to churches and letters to people with a lot of instruction. But the bulk of the Bible is just these narratives. And you've kind of got to read the story and you, you see what I call simple faith and simple failures. You just see the kind of everyday lives of people. And you can find yourself in that story where, where you struggle with the same things and maybe fail in some of the same ways and maybe um, have experienced the same victory in ways that God comes through as you step out in faith. And so we've called this uh, the power of love. Thanks, Huey Lewis, the power of love in the book of Ruth, because it is really a love story. There's a love story between families. There's a love story in a romance and a marriage that we're going to talk about even today. But we've also tried to take back a, a kind of a step back and say this is also not just about a love between people. But behind the scenes in this whole story, you see God's love, God loving people through people, but you also see him orchestrating things in what we call his providence, that God is sovereignly overseeing events and making connections, those what we talked about last week, as it turned out moments, where, where God's doing things and showing us his kindness through people. And so we're going to continue to kind of look at that. Um, let me give you an update in case you haven't read Ruth or you weren't here the first two weeks. I'll, I'll summarize chapter one and chapter two, and then we're going to jump into chapter three. So in chapter 1, we find out that there's this uh, guy named Elimelech who's married to someone named Naomi. There's a famine in the land, so the family moves to Moab. They have two sons who marry two Moabite women, and then all all the men die. So Naomi's husband and their two sons die. So it's just Naomi and the two two daughters-in-law. And she uh, says that God has put this upon her, that God has uh, taken her children from her. And at the end of chapter 1, we see Naomi very bitter. She actually says, you can call me. You can change my name to Bitter. The famine breaks, and they move back to uh, Bethlehem, and all the people surround her and ask her about what's happened with her life, and that's when she says, you can call me Bitter. And so Jake made the point, one of the, one of the points the first week was that we can't judge God's providence or God's goodness, God's kindness, just by circumstances, because there's a bigger picture that's going on in ways that God's going to redeem the things that are happening in our lives. 
In the second chapter, we, we see this kind of as-it-turned-out moment. So Ruth chooses to go with Naomi. I forgot to mention that part. One of the daughter-in-law stays in Moab, and the other, Ruth, clings to Naomi and says, I want to be with your family and your people. So she comes back to Bethlehem, and she steps out in faith and just tries to go find a way to provide for the family. And she ends up working at the, at the field of this guy named Boaz. And Boaz sees her, and we talked about last week, he notices her. And as he notices her, he begins to provide for and care for and give her food and allows her to work the land. And so during this time of harvest, after the drought, they've got this harvest. That's what happens. She she just gets to keep working and finds this provision. So now we're going to pick up with what happens next. And this could maybe be called the proposal because we're going to see uh, Ruth and Naomi kind of come up with a scheme to ask for Boaz to be this one word that was at the end of chapter two, this kinsman redeemer. Or, or this uh, guardian redeemer, as it's, as it's said there. So let me pray for us, and then we'll um, jump in. Sound fair? Cool. Well, God, we know that uh, your word is powerful, and that beyond just the words on the page or beyond the words of my mouth, your spirit is what, what stirs and speaks to us. And so we just invite you to do that. We, we need you to do that. And so take these simple words, um, make them meaningful for us th- this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do, kind of what we did last week, is we actually read the whole chapter and then kind of uh, went back and looked at it. This time we're just going to kind of walk through the chapter, and then we'll make some points afterward about what we can learn from the whole story. Sound fair? So if you have it, it's Ruth chapter 3 if you want to look, or it'll be up on the screen behind us. So it starts off this way in Ruth 3. One day, which I think that's kind of fun to start off early. If you looked at chapter 2, it was just one day, right? And this is just another day. So you've got two chapters of the whole book are just like a day in the life, just just a single day. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be provided for. Now Boaz, with uh, whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Uh, A little context here, uh, this idea of finding a home, meaning, meaning she wants to help arrange a marriage. So this sounds kind of strange, but this was common in that day for them to arrange marriages. And so she's saying, I need to find a home for you. If you remember back in chapter 1, that was part of the reason that she told the daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. She's like, there's not going to be a hope for a husband for you. You'd be better off if you stayed here. And so one of the daughter-in-law stays, and the other says, no, I'm going to go with you. Ruth says, I'm going with you. Even at the risk of potentially not having the ability to arrange a marriage. And so Naomi's doing something that was very culturally acceptable at that time. With no father, with no men in her life, Naomi's taking the role to, to think about arranging this marriage. The second thing that we have to uh, know about this passage here is about the kinsman redeemer, this whole idea of marrying into someone who's, a, who's a kind of a part of your family. Um, it's real, it might seem kind of strange to us, but in that day, being part of the family and preser- preserving family lines was extremely important. And so in the Old Testament, if you were to read passages in Deuteronomy 25, Leviticus 25, and Numbers 35, there's those three kind of passages that talk about this idea of if a family member is in a bad situation, someone from the family is supposed to go care for them, and they're called this kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. They would do such things as, as avenge um, someone who had, who had murdered someone in your family. That was part of the kinsman's redeemer role, to, to go make sure justice was put upon them. They would redeem land. So if someone, like you're going to see in the very next chapter that Jake will speak on next week, when you lose land because of a famine and you move away, it's the redeemer's job to come and redeem that land. Indeed, if you were a slave and you got sold into slavery, someone from your land, this this kinsman redeemer, someone from your clan is supposed to go and redeem you, buy you back from your slavery. 
And even if you were, uh, if you had a, or a widow, were a widow, there would be a brother or someone else in the family would be expected to marry and to help produce children to keep the family line going. And so this is what a kinsman redeemer was. This is why when Naomi in chapter 2 realized who it was in the field that she was working at, she said, I have hope again. This, this could be the person who can redeem us and can provide this home for you. You may remember the, the funny passage where the Sadducees, they were people that didn't believe in the resurrection. They go to Jesus and they try to trick him. In, in Matthew 22, I think it is, they say to him, well, we, we, got, a, we got a situation for you, Jesus. Tell us what, what you would do about this. If there's one guy that, that, that marries a woman and then he dies and so he, she marries a brother, right? So, so this was kind of a cultural thing. They knew this was the way. What, what if that happened seven times and the guys die seven times? Ooh, who's she going to be married to in heaven? <laughs> and Jesus said to the Sadducees, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the word of God. But in, in heaven, there's not going to be marriage. So you thought they were tricking him. That's just an example of how culturally that was what people expected to have happen. And so this was the hope that this was the kinsman redeemer. Here was a guy who could provide a home, could provide the shelter and protection for the rest of Ruth's life. We'll go on now to uh, verse 3. Here's where she hatches a plan. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. She went out to the threshing floor and did everything that her mother-in-law told you to do. So this has been weeks. So this isn't like the very next day because the harvest was when she was working the harvest. Remember, they're, they're getting all the harvest in. And this is what they call like the threshing time where they would get like the big stalks of, of the grain and they would have either animals trample on it or they would hit it with sticks and get the chaff to break away from the, the good stuff. And so this has been weeks that they've been working on the field. So during this time, I'm imagining, it doesn't necessarily say it here, but for weeks of working, Naomi's thinking about a plan. What's a way where we can approach him and we can ask if he will indeed be our redeemer? This is the plan that she's got uh, hatched in her head. If you remember last week, I talked to you guys about this little acronym, PAW. It's like, how do we kind of combine this whole idea of, of God being sovereign but we have to take steps. And how does God's providence and our action take place? And I said, we have to paw at it, <laughs> like, like my dog does at the door. P, we, we pray for favor. We ask for God to open doors. A, we act. We, we take a step of faith. And the W, we watch and see what God does. And this is exactly what Naomi and Ruth were doing. And so as they've pawed, they're starting to see God open doors. And they think, what's a way that we can go approach uh, and ask him to do this? So she gets all dolled up, and she does exactly what is said. The thing that I particularly like that she says is she doesn't give her exactly every single thing that she has to do because at the end she says, uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I have a, a coworker right now whose daughter's a junior and is just about to be prom time, and she was talking to me about it, and she said, I'm just hoping that, that there's going to be like a guy that I can trust that she would go to prom with, right? Like that's every mom or dad's fear, Right. Yet here, Naomi just so confidently says, he'll tell you what to do. He's a good man. He's a man of outstanding character. You've got nothing to worry about. Just take these steps, paw at it, and then watch and, and see what happens. Going on, it says this. Boaz finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits. When he went over to lie at the far end of the grain pile, Ruth approached him quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned. And there was a woman lying at his feet. 
Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my guardian redeemer of this family. So this was pretty typical of the, of the workers, maybe this person who was managing the whole field, they would do the threshing, and then to guard it, they would maybe sleep there. And so he's just kind of getting ready to sleep there and, and, and hang out till the next day's work. And Ruth sneaks up and does exactly what she was told to do. And I read a bunch of different commentaries because in one way, this seems kind of, uh, kind of inappropriate, right? Like here, you've got a woman sneaking up on someone in the middle of the night. So you'd had to ask the question, well, is this good or is this bad? Should she have done this? Is this wrong? Was this morally wrong? And the biggest bottom line thing is, as you see, there's nothing sexual about this. There's nothing sexual that you're going to see even as we read the rest of this passage, that as she approaches, she's not asking for anything. She's not asking for sex. Boaz does not ask for it. There's no manipulation. They're just asking to be married. This is what this whole idea of, of covering the garment is. It's a term that was used throughout the Old Testament, mostly actually of God saying that he spread his garment over us, that God married us, that God brought us into his family. And that's what she's asking. Let me be a part of your family. Bring me in. We're going to see Boaz's response in a minute. A couple of the things that I, that I kind of thought uh, were helpful was some said that maybe she did this because there was no other way to get along with him. That really, if you read the book of Ruth, the other, the other little bits that we have, he's, she's never alone. It's always in the company of the workers and the people. So maybe this was one of the only ways that she could get along with him. Maybe she actually went and did this so that if he wanted to say no, it wouldn't be public that he wouldn't have to do that in public. And, and you're going to see in a moment, he actually invites her to stay. Maybe he did that not out of any, any sexual way, but he had her stay for her own safety, that she couldn't travel back to be with Naomi in the middle of the night. Regardless, the biggest point is that you don't see any, any uh, foul play, so to speak, in this advance. It's a request to be married, to be brought into his family. The idea of the covering was actually the same word used earlier when he praises Naomi and he says, or praises Ruth, and he says to her, you, you have chosen to be with Naomi and you've trusted God to take you under his wing. So the very word that he had used of Naomi to say, you sought God as refuge to take him under your wing. Now she's actually approaching and saying, will you take me under your wing? Will you allow me to be part of this family? Well, let's see what Boaz says. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do whatever you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true, I'm your guardian redeemer of our family. There's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and the morning. If he wants to do his duty as a guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So first, Boaz recognizes this as this loving, loyal love that we've talked about, the same word of kindness that he praised her, that he praised Ruth for in the beginning. He said, you have chosen this loyal love with Naomi. And he praised her in chapter two. Now he's saying this is an even greater kindness that you would, you would ask me the same thing, the same love that you've chose to cling to Naomi. Now you're saying, I want to be part of this family. I'm going to cling to this family as well. He praises her for her character. Uh, this is one thing that you see throughout the book. It's just a, just a tremendous character of both of these people. Uh, Boaz, who's so generous. Boaz, who's so kind, who's, who's prayerful. He obviously knows scripture because he allowed the extra gleaning on the field in chapter two. He knows this whole concept of, of the kinsman redeemer. In fact, what's really awesome is it looks like he's already thought about this, <laughs> right? 
he already knew that there was someone else that was more closely related. So I don't think this took him by surprise. Perhaps it was something he was already considering doing and knowing that he had to do was waiting simply to be asked, wondering if there was a way to get around this other guy, yet has the integrity not to say yes and do it, say it's not right. In fact, it's not right for me to do it. There's someone that we have to ask first. That's the character of Boaz. And he praises Ruth for the same character, her loyalty, her hardworking, the way that she's selfless and godly and clings to a family. So much so that he'd be willing to ask this other guy. We'll finish up the story. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed a bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to the mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. He always does that, doesn't he? And Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until this matter is settled today. So now we're in day two. (laughs) We start with one day, we end with, this is going to happen the next morning. And so here... Again, there's nothing sexual that takes place. It's just a man saying, yes, but I'm going to do this after we ask this other guy, and he protects her and provides for her and sends her home. In fact, I thought it was kind of funny. The only thing he asks her to take off is her shawl. <laughs> so, so there is something. He says, take off your shawl so I can put some more food in it so that you can bring it back. This is the story again. And at the very end, again, Boaz can be trusted. Naomi knows this man will not rest until the matter is settled today total confidence that he's going to do what's right, that he's going to take a step of faith, he's going to do what God asks. So that's the wonderful story. And maybe you have to ask then, what do we really want to learn from it? And and as we've been kind of talking through this series, one of the biggest things that we've been trying to wrestle with is this whole idea of God's providence, that God is over all things, arranging relationships, orchestrating things in our lives, and his loving kindness, his loyal love to us is expressed through other people that he brings across our path. And so God is sovereign over all things. And we've also been trying to wrestle with this whole idea, then, then how do we interact with it? What is our part to play, and how do we go after something that we want? So very clearly here, Naomi and Ruth wanted something. They said, God, we want to be in this household. We want to be married. We want this provision. And so we have to wrestle sometimes, I'm sure you guys do too, with when you want something really bad, where, where does the trusting God to do it, and where does my stepping out interplay? right? It's a super difficult question, particularly when it comes to the bigger things of life. It's not like, you know, what am I going to wear today type of questions. We're talking about big questions of, do I buy this house or this house? Do I pursue this relationship? Maybe I want a career change. God, am I supposed to take this job or that job? Should I quit this job and pursue something completely different? Should I stay living in Austin or should I move? Many of you guys have just moved into Austin. I know your stories big purchases, things like that. And of course, most importantly, our relationships. Who are we going to marry? Even things like, what church am I going to be a part of? These are the questions that we're asking, and we have to ask the the harder questions of them, of where does God's sovereignty and my action take place? And so that's really what I want to talk about kind of in the remainder of our time. And I want to mention three things. So I want to say that pursuing God's will, or when you want something from God, Here's the best way to produce it, or the best way to pursue it. One is taking steps of faith with full integrity, that's second, and third, without manipulating circumstances. Taking a step of faith 
with full integrity without manipulating the circumstances. I think that's what we see here in this story. And it's one of the things that we can say, I love the way that these guys pursued going after something that God wanted. And I want to emulate those same things in my life by taking a step of faith first. Taking a step of faith, that really goes back to my kind of paw illustration, right? You pray for favor, but you've got to act on it. You've, you've got to go do something. So I love this, that, that Naomi had a plan. She had probably thought about it long and hard. We know this is a redeemer. How are we going to go about this? And so whatever her plan is, you're going to see later that it worked in the next chapter. But she planned. And one of the things that we have to do when we're trying to interplay our role with God's sovereignty and his will and these big decisions of our lives is we have to simply take a step of faith. And one of the ways that you do that is you plan. You put stuff on paper. I like the way my friend phrases it. He calls it being an idealist. So, so what's an idealist? It's someone who has a vision for what they want, and they have an idea, and they make a list. They're an idealist. <laughs> That's how you get things done. You say, God, I want to be married, or God, I want to change careers, or God, I want to see you open this door, or God, we want to adopt a child. What do you do? Put it on paper. Make a plan. There's, there's nothing godless or, or less godly about making a plan and putting something on paper saying, this is exactly what I want to do. Yet sometimes it's exactly what we don't do. I won't mention names, and I promise it's no one in our church, but I've got some other friends that are uh, guy friends that are single, and, and they're, they're sad about it. And sometimes I want to kick them in the pants and say, well, what are you doing about it? Like, when's the last time you asked a girl out? What are you doing socially to get out where you can meet people? There's a sense that God's supposed to just kind of divinely provide something for us. He doesn't just sit there and wait. We take steps and pursue something. I've got another really, really good friend who hates his job. And every time we get together, we meet together once a month or so. Every time he's, oh, I hate my job. I hate my job. And I'm like, well, get another one. <laughs> like, and, and every time I say, have you, filled out, have you created a resume? No, no, I haven't done it yet. I'm like, well, stop talking about your job. Take a step. It requires our action. We have to do something. Uh, and that's the first step. Think about this church. You think this church just kind of happened? Or you think there was stuff that was put on paper? You think that there was a group of people who were idealists and they had an idea of planting a church and they said, well, here's what it's going to take. And they started recruiting some of you guys from Hill Country Pflugerville and talking about it and casting this vision. And you guys had to enter into the same process of, of saying, is this something that God's calling me to do? And this is a huge step. So you had to paw at it. And as you pawed at it, you began to pray, and then as you act and you took a step, you watched to see what God would do. And many of you took a great step of faith of, of leaving Hill Country Pflugerville and moving into Central Austin for the purpose of trying to reach the people of Central Austin. That's taking a step of faith. That's praying and waiting and asking God to do something, having a vision, but doing something about it. But there's a trick about doing something about it. It's good for us to have our, what should we call it, strategery, We've got to have our strategery. But, but I like the, the quote by Mike Tyson. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> Everyone's got a... And Mike Tyson knew how to punch people in the face. Which, by the way, I think that's the most famous person Brenda's ever had on a flight. She had Mike Tyson on a flight um, a couple years ago. I was like, oh, you've got to take a picture. Um, actually said he was really sweet. But that's, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face, right? So this is good. We want to be idealists. We want to say, God, this is what I want. So I want to adopt a child. I want to change careers. I want to move. We'll start taking steps, pawing at it. But then what's going to happen is you're going to get punched in the face. Something's going to happen where your plans aren't going to work. 
And so the question always becomes at that point, what are you going to do? Because that's when you're prone to compromise. Plans don't work out. And so then we're prone to compromise our ethics to get what we want. So as we're pursuing God's will, there's always temptation all along the way. Think about it in this story. I mean, there, there was temptation. So Boaz could have easily said, like, yeah, I'll, I'll consider it. What do you have for me? Let, let's go. She could have come on to him. She could have done any number of things to compromise her ethics to try to get what she wanted. And this is the temptation that's always before us. So you're a student, and your ideal is that you want to graduate you know, from this college. Are you going to cheat along the way? Are there going to be those opportunities to get ahead of your students? Or you're, you're a business person, and in your business, you've got some slight chances where you could bend the books or change some things and do things in a way that lacks integrity that will get you ahead. You can push others down and talk bad about others so that you will rise up in the company. All these compromises come our way, and perhaps... To be really honest, and because this is a story about a relationship, probably the most common way that people compromise is in relationships. Wanting so badly to be married that they compromise. They either compromise their their sexual values to try to secure what they want, what they want God to give them, or they compromise their convictions and they, they get together with someone who doesn't share the same faith that they have because they so desperately want something. I can point to dozens and dozens of stories of people who've made compromises, particularly when it comes to relationships, because they say they want something, and they want it so bad, and they don't trust God to provide it, they can't wait, so they compromise along the way. You know, this story is actually really, really similar to another story in the Bible. Um, it's kind of a gross one, <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell it briefly, but you can find it in Genesis 38 if you want to read more about it. Um, but there's a story of Tamar. And so Judah was one of the you know, uh, sons of, of Jacob. And Judah has three sons. Well, one of them marries Tamar, and he dies. So the kinsman redeemer, the next son up, marries Tamar. But he doesn't want to produce her family line. We'll just put it, leave it at that if you know the story. And he chooses not to continue that family line. And so he actually dies. And so now you've got Tamar wanting this third son. And Judah says... I think something might be wrong with you, Tamar. I'm not sure I'm willing to give this third son to you. Let's wait till he gets a little bit older. But she doesn't want to wait. And Judah is probably withholding because he has fear of this third son dying as well. Judah's wife ends up dying. And so he says that he's going on a business trip. So he's going, he has sheep, and he's going to get his sheep sheared during that time. So he travels to go on this business trip. And Tamar, like Naomi, hatches a plan. I've got an idea. She dresses up. The story says, very similar to this, she dresses up really nice. And she goes ahead and gets to the town where Judah's coming to. And Judah finds her and assumes that she's a prostitute, doesn't recognize her. And he says, well, can we make something happen here? And he says, she says, well, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a goat. (laughs) So uh, market rate, I guess, in that time. He says, I'll give you a goat. She says, well, what what, what can I have as a pledge of your promise? And he, he says, I want you to give me a, your staff and your seal. And so Tamar takes his staff, takes his seal, sleeps with him, gets pregnant. Judy hears about it. He's irate and says, who is the one who impregnated you? She says, the one who gave me the staff. <laughs> and he says, you are more righteous than I. Very similar story, right? Yet here's Tamar 
She's got a plan. She's an idealist. She knows what she wants, but she compromises, let alone Judah's awful compromise along the way. And this is, this is what we're prone to do. We're prone to these temptations. So we've got to be careful that when we step out in faith, that we do it with full integrity, that we do it in a way that's honest, that we do it in a way that honors God. But I also want to make a second point on this because this has been a trap for me, is our integrity doesn't ensure that God's going to give us what we want. So there's a, there's a little trick that we can do sometimes if you're like me. You can try to manipulate God by saying that we've done things with integrity. So my integrity and in stepping out in faith to do something often is not so much just out of a pure desire to please God and to do things the right way and to honor people. There's also a subtle thing going on in my head that says, God, if I do it this way, then you've got to answer my prayer. And I want to just be real honest to say that's a trap as well. It was a huge trap for me. Um, I can't go into the whole details, but a, but a big part of my story was that, that I really wanted to be married. And, and I was dating these, these different girls, godly relationships, and really honored God in everything that we did. But every time they kept breaking up with me. <laughs> and I was like, God, what is the deal? Like, how come this keeps happening? I'm doing everything that, that you say to do, and you're not coming through for me. And I've got friends that are compromising, and, and they're getting married. What's the deal, God? And it actually took me to about a year and a half of counseling where I had to come to believe again that God was good whether he answered my prayers or not. And that I could keep taking steps of faith and I could do it with integrity. But even if I did it with integrity, it did not mean that God would answer my prayers. I can't trick God or I can't manipulate God. This was a book that was really meaningful to me at the time called The Sacred Romance. And this one paragraph that really convicted me. It says, Christians can opt for one of these or choose a more, quote, spiritual version. A religious man or religious woman, this is a popular option in which we try to reduce the wildness of life by constructing a system of promises and rewards, a contract that will obligate God to grant us exemption from the arrows. It really doesn't matter what particular group the bargain is, doctrinal adherence, moral living, or some sort of spiritual experience. The desire is the same, taming God in order to tame life. Never mind those deep yearnings of the soul. Never mind the nagging awareness that God is not cooperating. If the system isn't, uh, isn't working, it's because we're not doing it right. There's always something to work on, some promise of abundant life just around the corner. Plenty of churches and leaders are ready to show you how to cut a deal. And this is really where I got stuck. Like I would see God not come through for me, and I'd say, well, what am I doing wrong? I've got to do it better with more integrity. And it, you get in this vicious cycle rather than just trusting that God's in control, and I'm going to do things with integrity to honor God, whether he comes through as I expect or not. So I want to be careful to say we want to do things with integrity, but not to twist God's arm because we can't manipulate God. Which leads me to the third thing, without manipulating the circumstances. Manipulation is always going to be the chief temptation when it comes to kind of pursuing God's will this way. You've got something that you want to do. You, you want to change careers. You want to get married. You want to adopt. You, you want to buy this house. You want to move. Whatever big decision that you have going on in your life, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to take steps of faith. You're going to be tempted to compromise. And maybe it's not as directly sinful, but you're going to be tempted to manipulate to kind of orchestrate, almost like we've talked about God orchestrating things for our benefit, you're going to try to get in there and weasel your way around and make it work. I know, I'm very prone to do it. And if you read scripture, again, these narratives, you just see this all throughout scripture, particularly read the life of Jacob. Go back and read Genesis and read the life of Jacob. He, he was a deceiver. <laughs> he had things that he wanted and he found ways to manipulate circumstances and people all along the way to get what he wanted, including his father's blessing. He was a manipulator. And this doesn't honor God. 
When we take steps of faith, we want to do it with integrity and holiness, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't try to manipulate the circumstances in our favor because it doesn't work. I have one uh, really personal story with this, uh, with me. Uh, for, you know, as you guys know that I work with Campus Renewal Ministries, who are a campus ministry at UT, and for years we've kind of been building a united prayer movement and getting the body of Christ at UT to pray together. And, and probably since about 2000, uh, it had been a vision of mine to have a campus house of prayer, some place on campus where students could pray 24 hours a day from all the different ministries. We would all share it and use it and just to really raise the level of prayer for the campus because we believe that's how the spiritual uh, climate has changed on campus when we pray. And so in about 2000, we started doing this uh, prayer tent in the middle of campus where we would pray for like 24 hours a day, just, just for a week. And it was really cool, but all along I was like, I want to do this because ultimately I want us to have a full-time house of prayer. And so every year, we'd follow up with people that participated and say, do you want to do it? And they'd say, no, I really don't want to do this full time. It was fun for a week, but that's it. I'd get together all the college pastors and I'd say, hey, what do you think about this idea? And they'd say, ah, we don't really want to do it. Um, We don't think it's time. And it it just frustrated me. And so for a couple years, I found myself walking this fine line. And this is a super fine line between taking steps of faith, because we have to take action, but then manipulating is a subtle thing that we can feel in our heart when we're not trusting God, when we're trying to take control ourselves and turn things our way by the little things that we will do. And I found myself doing that, trying to convince other people, maybe even bullying some of the campus ministers or leaders into doing it. And for years, I was frustrated and nothing happened. And finally, about nine years ago, right around now, because it was Lent of 2006, so nine years ago, God said, Justin, stop it. You're trying to make this happen. And it's not going to happen if you keep trying to manipulate people. And so I got super, super convicted and said, well, God, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you during this Lent period, I want you just to prayer walk the campus for an hour every day. And I want you to pray for me to bring the house of prayer. Stop working on it. Stop talking to people about it. In fact, he told me, make a vow of silence. Don't talk about the house of prayer to anyone except me for the next 50 days. I said, okay. Um, So I did it. I started prayer walking the campus uh, six days a week and would just ask God to bring the house of prayer, even circled some specific buildings that I thought would be a cool spot. Maybe we could have it. And then prayed and said, well, God, how about this place? Let's do it. You know, I'm not talking to anyone about it except you. And so I kept that vow. And during those 50 days, three crazy things happened. One was during spring break um, that year, some students organized like their little own Austin mission trip. So we had a little Austin mission trip, and they invited me to come speak on prayer. So that morning, I went and spoke on prayer, and it turned into this, this one of the coolest prayer meetings I've ever been a part of. Everyone just started praying out loud at the same time and praying for a prayer movement to start at UT. And at the end, they're actually all praying, God, give us a house of prayer. Give us a place where we can pray 24 hours a day. And then at the end, they're like, Justin, what do you think about that? I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> see ya. So I'm like, what just happened there? So I walk away. So that happened about spring break. Uh, two weeks later was Res Week. And, and again, we did do this 24-hour prayer tent like we did at Res Week. And normally every year we'd have a little clipboard in there that said, I would like to do this full time. Let's have a house of prayer on campus. And usually about 10 people would sign up. We'd follow up. Those are the people I talked to. And they would say, no, we really don't want it. Those were the ones I was trying to manipulate to want it. This year we just had a little clipboard in there. I made no announcements about it. We just said, I would like to make 24-7 prayer happen. 72 people signed up on it. Once I was freed to speak after Lent, I contacted all 72, and I said, are you serious about this? I said, absolutely. Let's get it going. Let's do it. It's like, whoa. Right after Lent, uh, the, the week after Easter, a guy from Hill Country Bible Church UT, uh, Denny Henderson, some of you guys know him, he called me and said, hey, we're moving buildings. I think this building would be a great spot for a house of prayer. Would you be interested? 
I said, uh, yeah, that was one of the ones I've been circling and praying, <laughs> praying for. Um, and it was just, a, just a, a punch in the face, you know, a punch in the gut and a, and a reminder that manipulation doesn't work. That we take steps of faith, we do it with integrity, we don't compromise our ethics, and then we, we don't manipulate the circumstances either. And that, that's wonderfully what you see in this picture. You see the story of, of, of no manipulation, no compromise, wanting something, taking steps of faith and being bold enough to ask and see what God would do, but doing it in a way that honors God and honors each other, and God comes through. But you'll have to read about that in the next chapter. Before we close, I want to point out one more thing, that this whole kinsman-redeemer idea, it's actually a, a bigger step back is that Jesus is our redeemer. That's the word that starts to be used at the last half of the book of Isaiah, that Jesus is the redeemer. And so in some ways, you've got kind of like the gospel according to Ruth, that if you take a step back from the story and put yourself in it and put Jesus in it, you see the same exact thing. And I'm not making this stuff up because this was a word that was used of Jesus in Isaiah 48, 49 that he is a redeemer. He was the one that came and bought us back. Much like Ruth, we were poor. We were needy. We were aliens. We were outside the family. We're even maybe working, trying to work our way into a family by our own good works and try to make something happen. Boaz, like Jesus, is, is so generous. He's so faithful. He notices us like we spoke about last week. And he would die for us. He gives us that security and provides that home that was being sought even in this passage. And what, did, what do we have to do to earn our salvation? We don't earn it. We simply go to Boaz. We, we simply go to Jesus and we ask, can we be part of your family? And we receive Jesus. We're brought into his family just by faith. This is also a bigger picture. As you step back and look at it, we can rejoice in our own salvation the way that God has pursued us the same way. As the worship team comes forward, um, I'll pray for us and we'll sing some songs and interact and think about God's goodness and the way that he's cared for us. Thanks, God, for this little story that, that even in a, in a day of a life of someone, these simple people, you've preserved for us so much, allowing us to think about how good you are and providential in the way you arrange things for our benefit. And then to, to just see how when we take steps of faith, you, you open doors for us and you give us favor. Remind us today, God, how to do that in a way that honors you, where there's no compromise. Uh, we even just now lay before you, I just encourage you guys all just to think about what is maybe the one big thing. What's your ideal list? What's your idea? What's a thing you're, you're asking God for? God, we present these things to you and ask that you would make us full of integrity as we take steps of faith and free us from any temptation to manipulate circumstances. We give you these, uh, this vision, this idea, this goal. We give you what we want and ask for you to sovereignly orchestrate things and provide it for us. Even as we humbly in a holy way, take steps of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.